Good evening. Time to get started tonight. Good to see you all out. We're going to have two songs, and then Dwight has our reading and prayer, and then a couple more before our lesson. Let's begin with number 115. 115. Crown him with many crowns, the Lamb upon his throne. Hark how the heavenly anthem drowns the music that is old. Awake my soul and sing of him who died for thee. And hail him as thy matchless king. Next song tonight is Magnificat, going to be on the overhead only. Uh, sopranos, and then bass, and then altos, and then tenors, I think. I don't know, it'll tell you up there. Um, okay. <laughs> I'll sing soprano, and then I'll sing bass. I don't know the alto and tenor, so you guys are on your own. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God. My Savior, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit Rejoices in God. Glory be to 
Let's go to God in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we're thankful for this day that we could gather together and to worship you in spirit and truth. We're thankful for this privilege, the country we live in, and the freedoms we have to worship you without hindrance or fear from the outside world. We thank you, God, for each and every blessing you've given to us. We, we are grateful, Lord, that you look down upon us and, and have mercy upon us. We're thankful for your son, Jesus Christ, that we remember each Lord's day, the sacrifice that was made in behalf of our sins, Lord. We, we were regretful that, that this had to take place, that God, you, you loved us enough to send your only begotten son die in our stead. Lord, we, we think of those that cannot be here tonight, those, those that are ill, and those that cho chose not to be here, Lord. We ask you to have your, your mercies upon them, Lord, and heal them, Lord, be thy will to help them to recover and worship with us again. We ask you, Lord, to be with us tonight as, as we hear your word preached and, and we sing your word, Lord, Lord, that these things may touch our heart and that we may share with those that don't know thee and, and tell them about your son and your love, God, for them. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The scripture tonight that Chris has chosen is in Romans 5, verses 6, 7, and 8. Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Number 261. 
presentation this evening is 768. 768. And before our lesson, would you stand, please? This is an old one, but it may be a new one here, so we'll struggle with it as well. <laughs> I think it's an old Amy Grant or Michael W. Smith or Twyla Paris. I don't know. It, it's an, We'll get it. <clears throat> How excellent is thy name, O Lord! How excellent is thy name! Heaven and earth together proclaim. How excellent is thy name! How excellent is thy name, O Lord! How excellent is thy name! How much weight do you think a man can pull with his beard? It's a weird question, right? Back in 2001, there was a guy named Israel, no, Ismael Rivas Falcon. He's from Spain. And on November 15, 2001, in Madrid, this guy pulls... 6,069 pounds with his beard. A distance of 32 feet. Almost 33 feet. It's a train. This guy's pulling a train with his beard. <laughs> Some things I need to see to believe them, right? I need, that, I need to see that happen. I need you to prove that to me. Tonight, we're in Romans chapter 5. 
At least that's where we're going to begin. We're talking about God proving something to us. Romans chapter 5, verse 8, he has this really interesting word, demonstrate. This word demonstrate means what you think it means. If you've ever had somebody knock on your door, we don't, we don't do this anymore, uh, but several decades ago, um, you would have somebody knock on your door and, and they had encyclopedias or they had vacuum cleaners or something like that. And many of us remember those things, right? Uh, and they would come in and they would spill something on your floor and you'd be like, what are you doing? Have you lost your mind? And then they would demonstrate the vacuum cleaner to show you that it did indeed work the way that they were saying that it worked. God's going to prove something to you tonight. He's going to prove, prove to you that he loves you. A lot of us need to hear that proof, don't we? I need to be constantly reminded of that because I think a lot of us find ourselves in the situation of the prodigal son. You remember him? When he's in the faraway country, he's eating with the pigs, thing no Jewish person would ever even contemplate doing. This boy has resigned himself to because there's no other options. And so when he's sitting there in the muck and the mire and the, the spiritual and literal filth of the pig pen, he thinks about his father. And he's going to go back to his father and he's just going to plead for a servantship. He wants to be one of his dad's servants. And so on his way, as he's going back to his dad's house, that's all that's in this boy's mind, right? Because there's no possible way his dad's going to allow him back into the role that he once enjoyed as son. Surely those days are over. He has burned that bridge. When he walked up to his dad and said, Dad, I know you're not dead, but I wish you were, and give me what was, would be mine if you were dead, he burned that bridge. And so as he's sitting there in the muck and the mire, the spiritual filth and the literal filth, all that's in this boy's mind is, I'm just going to go back to my dad and I'm going to plead that maybe I can wash his car or maybe I can, I can scrub the, the, the dirt off his boots at the end of the day. I, maybe I can cook in the kitchen. I just want to be one of my dad's servants because they have it so much better than what I've currently got it. When he gets back on the road that he grew up on, his dad's been watching for him. You, you know the story and his dad as he sees the boy's silhouette in the, in the sunset, rushes out to the boy and he grabs him up and he throws a big party and he reinstates him with the ring. He, he's back in full sonship mode. All, all, the, all the things that he once enjoyed are his again. The father's love for him was greater than what he could imagine sitting in that pig pen, Right? In the pig pen, all he could think was, ah, the best case scenario for me is I get to go back and I get to be one of my dad's servants. At least, at least they have a roof over their heads and they eat a reasonable meal a couple times a day, maybe. A lot of us are there, right? And we need God to prove to us again that he loves us. I don't know what situation so many of you are in, but I feel like a lot of us find ourselves in the spiritual pig pen sometimes. And when we finally wake up, we think there's just no way that God can love me. Tonight he's going to prove it to you. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. He says, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. My ESV has shows us, but that, that's the word demonstrated. I think it's demonstrated in the old King James um, but it, it's literally prove. He's going to prove to you tonight that he loves you. 
from Romans 5, verse 8, the way that he's proven it, even 2,000 years later, is you can go back and you can remember the cross. If you ever doubted that God loves you, you go back and you remember the cross. And that's all the confirmation you need, that a sinless, perfect, divine, majestic, powerful, incredible, transcendent God humiliated himself to live in fragile earthen jars, a fragile earthen jar, and to be mocked and spat upon for you, for me. That indicates his incredible love for us across the ages, doesn't it? God would say, using this word, demonstrates or shows or or proves. He says, if you ever doubted my love for you, this proves it. Beyond the shadow of a doubt, this proves my love for you. Tonight he's going to prove it in a multiplicity of ways as well. We're talking about God's demonstrated love tonight. So some, from 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, God reminds us that his love is patient. <coughs> Excuse me. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Right? He's got a long fuse for us. That's the word... Uh, that he's going to use here. Um, he's not slow to fulfill his promises. Some kind of slowness, but patient, right? That word, when you see that word in Greek, he's, he's saying, I've got a long fuse. It's taking an awful lot for him to get mad at us. An awful lot for him to be done with us. Flip back over to Isaiah chapter 65. This is a passage that you need to see. Isaiah chapter 65 Verses 1 through 3. Israel, ancient Israel, was really good at proving this point because they constantly walked away from him. It seemed like they had a tether tied to them and the other end was at the pig pen and every now and then they just got jerked back to it, right? And so he's constantly proving to them, I really do love you. And so we have example after example after example of him being patient toward them. And it's just a reminder that when I find myself in the pig pen, when I find myself doing the things I know I ought not do and not doing the things that I ought to do, like Paul says in Romans 10, he deals with that too, doesn't he? An inspired apostle does things that he does not want to do and he doesn't do things that he knows he should do and it frustrates him and it frustrates us too, right? And so when I find myself in that situation, I constantly remind myself of God's love, his patient love toward me. Here's how he demonstrated it in Isaiah chapter 65, verses 1 through 3. I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. Right? If you remember anything about Isaiah and his people, they are so far away from God. They, they, they're not even in the pig pen. They're in ten pig pen Ten pig pens on down the line, right? They are, they've walked away from him, knowingly walked away from him, with prophets pleading for them to come back. And those prophets they killed. Isaiah, uh, tradition has it, is sawn in half by King Manasseh, right? All these prophets are going to die violent deaths because they refuse to stop calling people back to Yahweh. In Isaiah's day, it is reaching a pinnacle. They are, on the historical timeline, moments away from God withdrawing from them. 
But even here, listen to what he says. Isaiah 65, verse 1, I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here am I, here am I, to a nation that was not called by my name. They had no interest in looking for him. But he's raising his hands, waving at them, over here, I'm over here. You, you want your problems fixed? I'm over here. I can solve all of those things if you'll just let me. Verse 2, I spread out my hands all the day to a, a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices, right? A people, in verse 3, who provoke me to my face continually, sacrificing in gardens and making offerings on bricks. He's going to go on, but you get the, you get the picture, right? These are people who are Constantly, knowingly, willingly, willfully spitting in his face. Throwing his grace back in his face. And what? Flip back over to Isaiah chapter 1. This is not the worst of it. They are incredibly rebellious in Isaiah's day. In Isaiah chapter 1 verse 10... Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. He's not talking to Sodom. Sodom's been gone for hundreds of years. He's talking to Israel. He calls them Sodom in an effort to wake them up. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of, this, of you this trampling? Of my courts. That's a beautiful poetic phrase, isn't it? But the, the damage that these people have done to God's sanctity and to his majesty is undeniable. It's irreparable. They have they've used his temple as a latrine. Just going to the bathroom all over all over everything that is important and things that he, to him and that, that he's called righteous and holy. They, they spat on it. Bring no more vain offerings. In verse 13, Isaiah 1, 13 says, Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. Incense is something, along with the sacrifices, that he's commanded them to bring to him, Right? You want to be pleasing to me. You want your guilt, your sin absolved. Here's how you do it. You bring guilt and sin offerings. You, you, you burn incense. This is how you do it. This is how this guilt and sin is absolved. But it, your lives are so out of step with who I want you to be. Your, 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 your sacrifices are a mockery. You're, you're making them tongue-in-cheek. You're making fun of His grace and his way out of your sin by these ridiculous sacrifices that you're offering. How, how dare you? This is Israel in, in, G, in Isaiah's day. Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity in solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you stretch out your hands, here, here's the kicker. Maybe for us, when you spread out your hands, why are they spreading out their hands in prayer, right? 
I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. He's done, right? He's done with them. They, they've pushed him so far. He, he can't take it anymore. A holy God can't be with this kind of people. He's done. But then flip over to Isaiah chapter 6. When Isaiah is called for the purpose of bringing people back to Yahweh because he's patient, you've got to hear what, he, what his plan is because he knows what's coming. And you need to hear what he knows is coming. He cleanses Isaiah, and Isaiah's just kind of standing there, and God's talking about who, who can I send, who will go for us, who can tell Israel, this rebellious and stiff-necked people, who will tell them to, to come back? Who can convince them to come back to Yahweh? And Isaiah kind of says, well, there's nobody here but a bunch of angels. I, I mean, I'll go, you know, and he says, here am I, send me. And then God says, in verse 9, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. He's doing to them exactly what he did to Pharaoh. He's hardening their hearts. He's giving them truth, knowing that they don't want it, that they won't accept it, that they'll push back against it. And so even if and when Isaiah tells them truth, when he tells them to come, they're not going to come. They're not going to listen. Isaiah's got an important question for every preacher that's in that situation. How long am I going to have to do that? Because I don't want to do that. I, I want to preach. I want to tell people to come back to them. But I, I, I want results. I, I want people to, to line up with me, to serve Yahweh with me. And so Isaiah says, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitants and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away. And the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. You know what he says? Until annihilation happens, you keep preaching Isaiah. And he does. Until I destroy this land. Until there's not one brick on top of another. You keep on preaching Isaiah. But check out what he says in verse 13. Verse 13 is an important verse. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it's failed. You need to underline that last part. The holy seed is its stump. He's saying, I'm going to eradicate all the evil, all the wickedness, all the wicked people who just refuse to listen to what I'm saying. I'm done with them their prayers and their sacrifices, those, those things, they're not doing their job anymore. I'm putting aside those people. Those people will be annihilated. They will be condemned. Judgment is coming for them, and they come in the form of the Assyrian war machine, and they do annihilate Israel. What's so interesting, though, is he says that I'm patient because I'm leaving a stump. He's leaving a tenth, a, a portion not literally a tenth, if there were 100,000 people. He's not leaving a, a, a 10,000 or whatever a 10% would be of 100,000. I'm not good at math. Um, but he's leaving a portion of, of the people. Why? Because he's patient. He's literally got a long 
fuse with us. And, and you, you begin to get the impression of how long that fuse is throughout the book of Isaiah. But you can also find in the New Testament, of course, in John chapter 1. Let's know what John says in, in his beautiful prologue to his gospel. Um, it, it is poetry. It's prose at its finest. It's deeply theological. It's, it's beautiful. Um, the, the theological concept, concepts that John draws out for us here uh, are phenomenal, but you, you need to hear John 1, 11 through 13. When he's saying he, in John 1, he's talking about Jesus, right? He came to his own. Jesus came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Literally in Greek there, he's saying he came home. What if you came home from college and your parents were like, who are you again? It's like they got amnesia. They don't, they don't know who you are. What if you came home from work and your spouse was like, who, who are you? I live here alone. That's what happened in Jesus. He came home to the, to the world that he created, to the people who are called by his name, his own people. He came home and they looked at him and said, we don't know you. You're not in charge here. We're not going to submit to you. But in verse 12, John 1, 12, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh. He dwelt among man. Verse 14. You see his patience. He had every right. That very first time that anyone pushed back against him, but certainly the very first time that that mankind pushed against Jesus, he had every right to obliterate us, to, to, to wipe us off the slate and start again. But he doesn't because he's patient. His love is patience. His love is patient. So when we are back in the pig pen or when we do things we know we shouldn't do and don't do things we know we should do, we need to remember, his love is patient. That's how he proves to us that he loves us. Man, if he's patient with Isaiah, if he's patient with the people of Israel during Isaiah's day, if he's patient with the people in Jesus' day that do these things, he's patient with us too. It's proof positive that he loves us. He's demonstrated it. He proved it now. No one could go through that kind of torture. No supreme being could go through that kind of torture and not completely be sold out, completely love the one who's torturing them. To not obliterate them, to not wipe them off the planet, to not start fresh with something else. Only love can do that. His love's also passionate. In Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17, he says, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will Quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Don't miss that little bit there. He rejoices over you. Isn't that incredible? He rejoices over you. The, the same God who created the world, who breathed stars out at the speed of light, the same God who came in flesh, rejoices in you. Isn't that phenomenal? A cosmic being of this kind of power, of this kind of capability, what do you think he would 
find joy in? What do you think would, he would find happiness in? I, I think it would be something impressive, right? I, I think it would be something that amazes him. But I think what amazes him, I think what he finds joy in is relationship with us. That ought to set us back on our heels for a second. The passion with which he, he lives with us is incredible, right? In Luke chapter 15, you find three stories. The story of the lost sheep, right? The story of the lost coin and the story of the lost son. In each one of those stories, you need to go back and read them. But in each one of those stories, you find joy, right? When the lost thing is found. In fact, in Luke 15, verse 7, he says, In heaven, there's more, there's our word, joy. There's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. than over 99 who, don't, who, who stay, you know. This joy that he finds in us is ridiculous, isn't it? Incomprehensible. 1 John chapter 3, there's, there's a word here when he starts talking about God's love for us that you probably need to hear as well. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. My translation doesn't have it, but the NIV does. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, he says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. That word given in, in my ESV, um, the NIV translates it as, as lavished. Ah, that's a pretty word, isn't it? What's it mean to lavish something on someone? You, you, you just slather it on, on right? That, that's what he's done with his love. He, he's, he's poured it out in super abundance. It's incredible. Incomprehensible. You, you can't even describe it, right? That's the kind of passion that he approaches us with. In Matthew 23, verse 37 Jesus is recorded as lamenting over Jerusalem. He's, stand, he, he's sitting on top of a hill overlooking Jerusalem, very much like Jeremiah would 500 years earlier after Jerusalem had been destroyed. Jesus is sitting on a hill overlooking Jerusalem. And you remember what he says in Matthew 23, verse 37. He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I would gather you under my wings as a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not. You wouldn't have it. But that is his desire, proximity, closeness. That's his passion, that he wants to be with us. Isn't that phenomenal? That he wants to be with us. There are some people you struggle to be around, aren't there? Their personality messes with you. Um, they're, 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 maybe there's some uh, tics or, or something that they have that... You know, <laughs> If he smacks his gum one more time, I'm going to smack it for him. You know, like there are some things like that that just grate on your nerves, aren't there? You would think that after all the things that we've done, that we would grate on his nerves, on the father's nerves. But he enjoys being around us. That's passion, isn't it? His love is passionate. Before our time gets... All but gone. We need to think about how his love is persuasive. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, Paul says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. 
this self-sacrifice, this giving of himself, he intended it to endear him to us. He takes the subordinate role so that he can engender love in us, so that he can endear himself to us. It's hard to wrap your mind around that, isn't it? In the early 19th century, uh, John D. Rockefeller, I'm sure you've heard his name. Uh, He's a a philanthropist, but he donated thousands of acres of land uh, in Maine and Wyoming and Montana and uh, lots of places out west. And he formed through these lands are added to uh, with this uh, acquisition of lands, uh, Acadia National Park, um, Yellowstone, the Grand Canyon, Shenandoah, and the Grand Tetons. There's probably others. Um, but this wasn't something that he did out of uh, to make a name for himself. He just thought it was a good thing to do. But out of his generosity, you know what lots, lots of the parks have done? We were in Acadia a couple years ago in Maine, uh, and we noticed that there were um, these carriage roads. A lot of them are named after John D. Rockefeller. He engendered he endeared himself to them through his generosity. Jesus has, has done the exact same thing in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. He said, remember when I was among you, when I put on flesh, that ought to endear me to you. You see how he's coming after you? His love is persuasive. He's pursuing us. In Romans chapter 2, verse 4, Paul says this about God. Romans chapter 2, verse 4, he says, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, there's our word again, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. It's his kindness that leads you to repentance. He's persuading you. Come, come follow me. Are there risks? Yes. Oh, there are risks. What, will it be easy? No, it's not going to be easy. Will it be good? It'll be the best thing you've ever done. Will there be blessings beyond your imagination? Will you, get to, will you take care of me? No doubt about it. His love is persuasive. We also need to remember that his love is powerful. Just got a few minutes left. I wanted to point you to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 19 through 20. He says, And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places? The resurrection is an illustration of his power. If you can't see his power through the resurrection, you're not paying attention. It, it's, it's, it's probably even an illustration of his love since nothing means anything without the resurrection. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 15, without the resurrection, we're all pitiable. Everyone should pity us. If the resurrection is not true and we're living like it is, everyone in the world should pity us. But if it is true and you live like it is true, then there are blessings innumerable waiting on you. 
God's love is powerful, able to pull the farthest person away from him, close. Power, unimaginable power. Like we were talking about this morning, just sitting with some of these verses and thinking through them, thinking through the ramifications and what it means and trying to figure out what he meant when he said certain things. That will break your heart. His love is powerful. We have to talk about this, though. His love is persistent. His love is persistent. In Jeremiah 31, verse 3, he says, The Lord appeared to him from far away. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. You know what's going on during the prophet's days? We talked about that in Isaiah. Zephaniah writes years, hundreds of years after Isaiah, but still the same situation is going on. Israel is walking away, knowingly walking away, as far away from God as they can get. But his love is persistent. I'm reminded of Adam and Eve when they sinned in the garden. What did he do? He didn't automatically cut ties with them completely, did he? What did he do? He shows his love for them in this making of, of clothes. They were concerned about their nudity, right? And so they had made clothes for themselves, but they weren't appropriate clothes, and they weren't good clothes, and they weren't his clothes. Your kid ever walked up to you and, and said, can I have this? And you know that they need it, that they want it so bad. And what do you do? <sighs> yeah, of course. You can have it. My kids don't listen. Um, but for, for, for most of us, that's... That's, that's our heart, right? If our kids come to us and, and we know that they need something, absolutely. This is a good thing. I, I want to bless you like, like this. And so he does. He, he makes clothing for them. And he only then sends them out into what will become a very dark and hostile world. But he's prepared them now, at least as much as he can, for the decisions that they've made. See how his love's persistent? I think of uh, the prophet Hosea. You remember his story, of course. He married a prostitute, knowing that she was going to go back to her old lifestyle. He actually names his kids, not mine, right? He has three different kids with her, uh, and, and they, all, all their names are, none of their names are things that you would name your children or your grandchildren. Um, he knows that she's going to be unfaithful. But what's he do? He goes after her. Even after she's gone back into the old lifestyle and she's been sold into slavery, Hosea goes and he buys her again out of that lifestyle and brings her back into the exact same relationship that they shared before she walked away. God says, this is a picture of my relationship with Israel. It's an illustration. He uses this prophet's life as an illustration for his relationship with Israel. His love's persistent. It pursues you. He doesn't quit on his people. His people quit on him. Tonight, if you quit on God or if you've just been struggling, we want to pray for you that you can be everything God would have you to be.
If you've not been baptized tonight, that's the very first step into God's family to be a part of this incredible congregation and what we're trying to do in this community. We would love for you to become a part of God's family, but even more pertinent for you, we would love for you to be saved from your sins because you're still lost in them. Without the power of baptism, we're still condemned, and that baptism washes those sins away. Tonight, if you have any need, why don't you come as we stand and sing. Good evening, church family. A couple announcements before we are dismissed. Um, as a reminder that our food pantry are desperate needs some items. Uh, the, uh, the list is out on the bulletin board. Also, this Tuesday's Young at Heart at going to Cam's Ham at 1030. Um, potluck next Sunday. Uh, so we'll have 1 o'clock service, no 6 o'clock service. Uh, remember, continue in your prayers. Keep Jimmy Wilgus in your prayers. Jim Haney. Tanya Shamblin, Judy Jordan, Carolyn O'Lynn, John Klein, Jim Martin, Roger Pryor, and Zach Russell. Remember them in your prayers this week. Uh, that's all the announcements I have. If you had not had the opportunity to take the Lord's Supper, it has been prepared in the conference room. You may leave and do that now. We'll sing one more song and be dismissed in prayer. Close tonight with Heaven's Gonna Shine. I don't know exactly how sweet heaven will be. I don't know what beauty or what glory I'll see. I don't know what I 
Let us pray. Father in heaven, we come to you now thanking you for this beautiful day that you've given us. We thank you for the time that we've had to come together as a family to, to worship you and to study your word. Father, we thank you for Chris and the lessons that he's given us today, that we can apply it to our lives, that we could share it in our community and to work in the school to wherever we go. Father, we pray, also pray that we will be patient with the ones that we talk to about you that one day that they will learn your word and become faithful to you father there are so many that's on our hearts and our minds that are dealing with cancer and sickness and are in the hospital or have procedures that are upcoming that you'll continue to be with them and their doctors and if it's your will that you will uh, heal them father we pray that as we leave today that You'll continue to be with us and we'll be a shining light wherever we go. We thank you for Jesus and all the things that you do for us. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs> 